Um, today is the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, today is, uh, or sorry, this is a journey uh, that we take towards the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It's a journey that's oftentimes challenging uh, as we walk uh, through sometimes difficult places. And we have a partner on this journey this year, a man named Job. And uh, Job is an interesting partner. Uh, Job is going to take us into some places that are, are difficult and that are dark. And yet we're going to see the light of God shining through his life and his journey. And I believe that we're going to find hope for our own journey as we walk along with Job uh, this Lent. Job kind of seeks to, this book seeks to address this age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? And the fact is, there's, there's no simple answer to this question, right? There's no single simple thing that we say, oh, that's it. Humanity's been missing it all these generations, right? Like, it's not a simple matter, of course, this, this problem, problem of suffering and evil. We know that even the question itself is a bit flawed, right? Because none of us are truly good. The Bible's clear that we're all sinners. We all mess up. We all fall short of God's call and God's holiness. But it sure is difficult when we suffer and when we go through pain. Job is a book of wisdom, like some of the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These books uh, give us God's wisdom and help us to understand it. Um, it's an interesting book. It's a very old story. Uh, most scholars would put Job as predating Moses, maybe even Abraham. Uh, Job is somebody who's very early in the Bible. Uh, we know this because he offers sacrifices on his own without a priest. Uh, we know this because a, a number of factors in his life. And so it's an old story. Interestingly, there's some debate as to whether or not it's a historical story or a or a um, um, come on, not a proverb, uh, but a parable. Jesus told parables. I'm a little slow here this morning, apparently. Sorry. There's some people who'd say it might be a parable and others who might say that it's historical. Honestly, I don't think it's a huge deal because the story tells us truth about how we go through suffering and how God is with us in suffering. And we find truth in parables like Jesus told and in historical events as well. Job was a man of impeccable character who found himself at the center of a cosmic battle between God and Satan. And it's kind of wild. I'm going to tell you the beginning of the story because the book of Job begins with this encounter that gives us kind of the backstory on everything that's going to happen. And then you have a bunch of dialogue between Job and his friends and Job and God. And then you get this ending of the story. And the ending of the story is amazing. It ends in like one of the biggest flexes from God you'll ever see in the Bible, right? In his words, in his action, it's amazing. So we need to stick with us throughout this whole series uh, because we're going to see God move in some great and some mighty ways. But we see here in the beginning of the book something that we will know that Job will not know. He won't understand the things we know. Job 1, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned, now get this, think about this number of animals. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, so that's at least 1,000 oxen, and 500 donkeys. 
and a large number of servants. Well, obviously, who's going to feed all those animals? Who's going to care for them, right? So he was the greatest man among the people of the East. So this tells us a lot about Job. First, he's a stand-up guy. It says that he's blameless. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. That means that when we're talking about Job, if you were one of Job's friends, he's one of those guys who lives in such a way that who could say a bad thing about Job, right? I mean, he is that kind of guy. He's an awesome person. If you start to criticize Job, somebody would be like, well, who are you? I mean, Job's a lot better guy than you are, right? Like, who are you to open your mouth and talk about him? So Job is blameless. Financially, Job is loaded. He's got a lot of resources. I mean, and we'd say, well, why did you buy all those animals? Well, that's the kind of society they lived in. Animals equaled wealth. So Job has this amazing business going on because he's got all these oxen that can, can plow the ground, and so he can have a great crop every year. He's got uh, sheep, which often the original language includes both sheep and goats. Uh, so from that, you'd have a number of products coming from those animals. Then you've got all sorts. You've got 3,000 camels, 500 donkeys. This is how you haul the product away, right? You take it to the market to sell. And so Job is like, he's running the ancient version of Amazon.com here, right? I mean, call him Job Bezos if you want. Like, he is... By our standards, absolutely a billionaire, right? I mean, Elon Musk, uh, these guys, they don't have anything on Job. He was the greatest man in the East, okay? This is Job. This is a really strong introduction. And believe it or not, it's going to even get stronger here in a minute. But a little more backstory. Verse 4, his sons used to hold feasts in their home on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. This is kind of a side note, but it tells us why they sometimes would all be together under one roof, which will matter in a little bit. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, this is pretty wild. I mean, Job is so upright in the way that he lives that when his kids get together and they celebrate birthday, they party, all this kind of stuff, after the party, he says, hey, we're going to have a little church service here, right? And we're going to confess just in case, not that you did anything bad, in case you thought anything you shouldn't have thought in the process of this, we're gonna, I'm going to make a sacrifice on your part just to make sure we're good, okay? So that tells you how seriously Job takes his relationship with God. If they would have even thought curses against God, he wants to make sure that we got all this, these bases covered, right? This is a guy who's really taking care of business here. We, we get this, right? Many of us, we, we pray for our kids. We, we want to support our kids. We want to love our kids, all this kind of stuff. We stand in the gap for them. And when you're doing that, you're doing like what Job did here. Know that those prayers don't go unheard, that that's a valuable, that's a good thing. We see that in Job's life. So now we enter into this weird kind of dialogue between God and Satan. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now remember, Satan is a fallen angel. Okay, Other places in the Bible tells, uh, tells us about his origin. Um, he was an angel, a beautiful angel, an angel of light, and he became arrogant, full of pride, and, and to a level that's sinful, and God kicked him out of heaven ultimately. This is how Satan becomes Satan the bad guy, right? And so Satan, for some reason to this day, the angels are presenting themselves before the Lord and Satan comes too. Why? 
I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It just tells the story here. So the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan said, from roaming throughout the earth, back and forth on it. In other words, I've been hanging out on earth, just chilling, kind of checking it out, right? That's what I've been doing. What have you been doing, God? And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, you know you're doing well when God starts bragging on you, right? (laughs) When God is talking to Satan and he's like, hey, you know what? You want to see an example of my power? Job. Check this guy out. I mean, how do you get better than Job, Satan? Even God is impressed by Job. Like, that's my servant down there. He's my, my friend Job. He's an example. You live for me. Look at how this works out. It's good. That's Job. Satan's not impressed. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But Stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Of course Job likes you. You've given him everything, right? The guy's got 3,000 camels, for crying out loud. Camels are like cars, right? The guy's got a 3,000-car garage, for crying out loud. Who's not holy when they've got a 3,000-car garage, God? Like, this, this guy knows no pain. He knows no suffering. If, if, his, no big deal. If, if, you, if you would let Job lose all of his stuff, you take it all away from him, he'll curse you to your face. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. God, God you're just like a, you're a candy machine for Job, okay? You just give him everything he wants. So, of course, of course he thinks all that of you. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan has been given permission from God in this very strange story. Satan's been given permission from God to to attack the things around Job. Not Job himself, but all the things around Job. And remember, Job doesn't know this, okay? It's not like God has a little talk and says, hey, Job, um, Bad news, Satan and I talked today, and things are going to get rough. No, Job has no idea of any of this. We know it, the reader, but Job is totally unaware. And, and it just says it. And this is kind of how the Bible is sometimes. It just tells the story. And it doesn't answer all the questions that I want to have answered, right? Why are you doing this, God? Why can't you just say to Satan, eh, we're not going to do that. I trust Job. He's good. You don't have to trust him. I don't care. We're, we're not going to do that. That's not what God does. And I look at God and I'm like, God, what were you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking? Like, why would you do this? This seems like a really bad idea, okay? I'm not God. You are. But boy, this, I would like you to rethink this one, right? And yet, this is what God chooses to do. And the results are horrific. Verse 13, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, remember birthday party thing, uh, a messenger came to Job and said, 
The oxen, oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabians attacked them and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. So in other words, we just lost at least 1,000 oxen and 500 donkeys. That's not a small event, right? I mean, this was a major attack from a large group of people. It all got taken. I'm the only one who got away while he was still speaking. Another messenger came. So he doesn't even finish the story. Another messenger come and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens. Now, we know it wasn't really the fire of God, right? This is Satan doing this. But this is their interpretation. Fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. That's a lot of fire to burn up that many sheep, right? This was a bad day. All the sheep and all the servants, minus me, I managed to stay back from the flames and get out of there. They all are gone. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, but guess what? It's not good news. The Chaldeans formed three party raiding parties and swept down on your camels, the 3,000 camels, and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then it gets even worse. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Wow. He lost all of his wealth and all of his children. And... Interestingly, the author chooses to tell it not from the vantage point of each of those stories, but from Job's vantage point as a man who in like two minutes, his entire life falls apart. The, the doom is so bad that one doomsday storyteller can't even get his doomsday story out before the next one comes in to tell him something worse. It's all gone. I mean, imagine, it's like if you're walking out to the parking lot today and somebody comes up and is like, hey, uh, somebody just stole your car, I think. You're like, oh, that's the worst thing I've heard. Somebody else is like, actually, it's not. I drove by your house just now and it's like burnt to the ground and that's terrible, right? And somebody else is like, well, that's interesting because I just stole your identity and took all your money. See ya. And somebody else is like, yeah, and also most of your family just died too. What? How, how is that much... How is that even possible? Is this some kind of a joke? Like, how, how can one person lose everything in that amount of time? Of course, life can turn in short order. We've all had that at times. But this is a whole other level of destruction. And then, wor worse yet, in the next chapter, so um, fast forward a little bit, Job, his response will be good. And so the next chapter, Satan goes back to God, and God's like, yeah, check it out. It was just like I said. Job did fine, right? And Satan's like, well, <laughs> big deal. All I did was take away all his stuff and his kids. <laughs> Anybody can deal with that. If you let me strike him, God's like, okay, you can't kill him, but you can make him hurt. And so, God, so Satan then gives Job all these boils. And it's so nasty that he actually takes broken pottery and scrapes them to help feel better. That's a bad day right there. So, Job, it's just misery after misery after misery. So, what does he do about it? What does he say to God? Does Job curse God? No. In both instances, Job gives an incredibly faithful response. Verse 20, 
Job stood up and he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head. Those are all normal grieving procedures then. And he fell to the ground in worship. Worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had. The Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. (laughs) In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Wow. This is kind of Ash Wednesday right here, right? From dust you were made to dust you'll return. We come into this world with nothing. We leave it with nothing, no matter who you are. Think about Job's response, though. Show of hands. How many of you would have responded that way? You'll notice my hand's not in the air. I mean, who among us would be like, yeah, probably. I mean, this is, this response almost seems unreal. Job's faith in God is incredible. And notice that his first response, and he's going to, He's going to go through a lot in the book, and sometimes his responses are not going to be great, okay? But his very first response is, is this. It's hope. It's surrender. And you know, friends, we can find hope in suffering when we surrender our pain to the Lord. Some of you are here, and you're bringing some heavy pain today, more than I know or maybe anybody else in this room does. And I'm not going to tie some neat little bow on it this morning. That would be really wrong of me because your pain is real. And we, as humans, we go through pain. And I'm really deeply sorry that you're going through that. I can't just give you a simple answer as to why you're going through it. But I want to give you an invitation this morning as, as we talk to consider the possibility that surrendering that pain to God may be the very best thing that you could do. And it may not be the easiest thing, but it may be the best thing that you could possibly do. When we go through pain, it's it's complicated with God. Because when we go through pain, we get to this point where we're like, okay, i The Bible teaches of this God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and yet I'm going through pain. And the math doesn't seem to add up there. Why do I go through this? Why don't you just take it away, God? I've prayed about it. Maybe even others have prayed about it. I sure want to be free from it. Did I do something? If I did something wrong, could you show me? Could I fix it somehow? Is Why do I have to go through this? And as I, and as I read this story, it, honestly, it, it makes me mad. Like, Job didn't even do anything. This is just some God versus Satan thing that poor Job finds himself in the middle of, and I don't even get an answer. I want an answer as to why, and I don't get an answer as to why. And I wish there was that answer. The story ticks us off at certain levels. But you know, when I look at my own life, there's, I've only got 44 years down so far, but as I look back at the past 44, I can see times 
where there's been some great pain. And sometimes I knew why in the moment. Other times I didn't. Oftentimes later on I would see reasons for it perhaps or at least how God helped me through it. Other times I'm still waiting. I'm still trusting. But I know I've not been left alone in it either. And that's a pretty amazing feeling to have. You see, the story of Job, it's not just a story for Job, but Job is a representative of all of us. These biblical characters, they're kind of larger than life. And, and Job shows us this truth that until Jesus returns, suffering is part of life. You will either grow better or you will grow bitter through suffering. The choice is yours. And this is really important to understand that we have a choice when we suffer. I wish I could tell you that being a follower of Jesus meant no suffering ever. <laughs> it would be the best sales pitch for Christianity, right? Become a follower of Jesus, no pain or suffering. Life is great always. But it's just not true. It's not. And Job is one of these stories that helps us to become, I don't know if okay is the right word, but helps us to deal with it. That gives us an example of somebody that we can follow as we deal with it. Because whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you are going to experience suffering. You're going to experience hardship in life, guaranteed. If you're not there now, it'll happen at some point. And certainly you've been there before. So what do we do in the midst of this? See, our, I believe that when we, when we surrender our suffering to God, when we say, God, I don't like this. I wish you would take it away. I ask you to take it away. But as long as I'm going through this, would you somehow make me stronger through this? Would you use this for a purpose? Would you recycle this nasty stuff that I'm dealing with and turn it into something good? James 1, dear brothers and sisters, when the troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for, get this, great joy. It's not usually our default setting, right? James challenges us. Consider it as an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. For when, let it grow. So when your faith, your endurance, excuse me, is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You know, if you want to grow in your life, you have to go through some pain and struggle. It's true of everything. You don't learn to throw a football like Joe Burrow by sitting on the couch. It doesn't happen. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of difficulty. You don't build a great company by working part-time as a hobby every now and then. You've got to be all in. You've got to give a lot. You, you don't build a great marriage by ignoring your spouse and just focusing on everything that you like in life. No, you do life together. One. One in the Lord. And the challenge, like I said, the challenge of preaching from Job is that it doesn't always neatly tie up into a, a neat little bow every week. It's messy. It'll be messy. It's difficult. Life is difficult. We'll walk through some difficult places and some great places, and what we'll see is that as, is that as we seek the Lord, that we will find him, that we will find him. For me, I've, I've kind of learned three truths about suffering. First of all, life is hard. It is. Life is hard. 
Christians, non-Christians, it's hard. Second, God is faithful. I believe this with all my heart because I've seen it throughout my life. I have often not been faithful, but God has always been faithful to me. And I've seen it in the lives of so many others. And we're going to see it in Job's life too. And third, I won't fully understand every problem I face. Some I will, I think. But some I don't. Some I don't. And I have to be okay with that fact. There's going to be some things I'm not always going to understand, especially in that moment. Now, the question is, what difference does number two make? Because pretty much everybody on earth would believe number one and three. We know that life is hard, and we know that we don't always understand everything. But what does God's faithfulness, does it really make a difference at all? I mean, Christianity teaches that one and three are actually a direct result of sin, that God did not make it to be this way. See, sometimes we go through hardships and pain, or we do stuff that we shouldn't do, and, and, and we're like, well, this is just the way that God made it to be. No, it's not. Look back to the Garden of Eden. You see a world without sin, without heartbreak, without pain, without suffering. You see earth as God intended it to be. And it doesn't look like what we have today. When sin entered the world, the Bible tells us that death entered as well, that all this negative stuff entered as well, that, that, that all these things that God did not want for you and me are here. So the, the world, the pain that we live in is not all the will nor desire of God. Satan was not created to be who he is today. Satan was created as an angel of light. This was not God's initial plan, but God loves us, so he gives us free will, the ability to choose. I'm glad I have free will. I'm glad I'm not a robot. But the pain that it causes is significant. It's real. It's real. And Job will teach us how to walk faithfully through suffering, sometimes by his success and sometimes by his struggle. And what we will see is the life of a man who strives to live a life that's surrendered to God. Even though he doesn't always walk it out flawlessly, he strives to surrender to God. He says those words, the first response in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, the Lord is taken away, and the name of the Lord is to be praised. Later he would say, should we accept good from God and not trouble? Basically, we get, we get it all. And hear me, friends, without God's faithfulness, the human story always ends in a very depressing way. I mean, if there is no God, we're, we're born into struggle, right? And we grow and we struggle. And hopefully later in life we get some success, but it's really through often a lot of struggle. And we age and we struggle. And our bodies slow down and that's a struggle. And eventually we die. And if there is no God, that's it. Game over. It's really a depressing story when you think about it. If Number two isn't real in that if God isn't faithful, if there's not a God, if there's not something bigger than what we encounter here on this earth, life, let's just be honest, it's, it's difficult. And we only get a little joy here and there in the middle, and then it's all done. But what if that's not? What if that's not the reality? What if there actually is a God? What if there is a God who knows you, who loves you, who cares about you? In fact, what if there is a God 
that created a perfect world, and then we messed it all up. And he could have just given up on us and moved on and created something else. He's all-powerful. He's got options, right? But what if instead of that, he looked down and he saw human suffering, and it broke his heart, and he cared. And he cared so very much about me and you in our suffering that he decided to do something ridiculous about it. He decided that he himself would leave heaven, would come down to this earth, and that he would take this, this sin, all of mine and all of yours, this sin that has wrecked his beautiful and perfect creation, and instead of blaming and shaming us, that he would actually take it on himself, that he would become the sinner, that he would represent every single one of us, just like Adam and Eve represented us in the garden. And that, that when he would go to that cross, that he would take that sin and he would take that shame and he would take all of that and he would give his life to fix this sin problem so that, so that we could have hope of eternal life. So that this life that we see here on earth would not be the final answer. No, it's actually the most difficult part of the story. That the best would truly be yet to come. And that as we trust in this God, that as we trust in this Jesus, that we can enter into this kingdom of heaven that he created and we can, we can begin, or that he opened for us, and we can begin to experience that right here and now. Not in its perfection, but in its beginning. And what if this God, what if this God did this by himself suffering? What if he saw our suffering and he realized that the only path to redemption was through somebody taking that sin and suffering for it. So what if that God came down to heaven and he took our sins and he was in a garden that night and he said, if there's any other way, let this cup of suffering pass. But not what I want, but what you want. One of his best friends betrayed him. Another one denied three times that he even knew him. The others ran and hid. He was tried and convict, convicted for lies. The people that he came to save tortured and killed him. They beat him. They whipped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They drove nails through his hands and feet. And he went to the cross because he knew that in, in my sin, in my suffering, there was no hope. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, should not have to live in suffering forever, but instead should have eternal life. What if it's true what if there is a hope that is so much bigger than this world? What if there's a hope that you and I can experience here and now today, and it won't make all of earthly pain go away. It won't make this life a cakewalk, but it gives us a new purpose and a new hope and a new meaning. And sometimes when we're suffering, God will work miracles and will take that away, and I will pray for that every single time because I believe in that. And other times, I will walk through some suffering here on this earth. And I will look to people like Job 
because I need encouragement and support and help. And we do it together because we need one another. What if that's how God made it to be? What if that's God's intent for us right here and now? You know, you can enter that relationship. I'm going to pray in a minute, and you can pray right along with me. And you can ask Jesus into your life right now because I believe with all my heart that he died on the cross for our sins and they rose again on the third day and that he is victorious over sin and death and suffering. And the worst things you're going through right now, he has defeated and you and I will experience ultimate victory. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we need you. This life is really hard, but it's a lot harder without you. And Jesus, I, I want to know you right now, and I want to know you throughout all of eternity. Uh, I want to stop trying to solve all these problems myself because it is not working. Instead, I want to give myself to you. I confess, God, that I'm a sinner. I mess up. I fall short of your glory, and that causes suffering for me and for others. And I pray, Jesus, that, or I thank you, Jesus, that you took my sin when you went to the cross, that you paid the price that I owed, but instead you paid. And so I give myself to you. I surrender it all to you, all of my life, my desires, my hopes, my failures, my successes, I give them to you. And I ask that you would take this life and that you would use it for your glory. God, I pray for all who are suffering here today. I pray that as we sing, as we worship, I pray that you would do a, a mighty act. I pray that you would do a, a supernatural act of healing. For some of us, we're going to come forward and gather at this altar and pray. And I just pray that you would do amazing things, God. Only you can do. For some of us, we're going to we're going to bow down at home right where we're at. We're going to get to our knees. And we're going to seek you right there. And I pray that in our homes that you would meet us right now. And for others, we're going to seek you in our own way, God. And I just pray that you would move in our hearts and our lives. Do what only you can do, God. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.